The Plumley Pod, episode 34. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is Simon Day back for the third time by popular demand. He is co-author, of course, of The TV Delusion with the amazing Joanna van der Leer, whose work and research the two of us have both cribbed off enormously for today's podcast. So Joanna, thank you very much indeed for doing our homework for us. Simon, you are The Plumley Pod's Mr. Popular. Welcome back. <laughs> she is indeed. And thanks for that glowing introduction, Sarah. That was absolutely wonderful. Completely bowled me over. So today, hopefully, we're going to talk about the placebo. Am I right? Yes, indeed. This is the topic I've been dying to talk with you about, as I think it very much ties in with the COVID-1984 tyranny, the, the narrative that there was some killer virus out there. But before I get way ahead of myself, this is all about just asking why, isn't it? Yeah, and no, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the first thing is I'm actually thrilled to be back, and I'm very pleased that you've invited me back for a third time. Absolutely wonderful. And I was just going to say, really, that although I'm going to talk about the placebo today, I don't really know much about the subject, really. And my ramblings are just here, really, to make people think. Maybe they'll think about some of the things I say, and maybe it will cause them to ask questions themselves. Because asking questions is the key tool we have in finding out about the world around us. And it's such a powerful and strong thing that, and it's easily turned off. So if, when you get to the stage where you think you know the answers, that's kind of in some ways the most dangerous place to be in because that's like a end of the road. It's like a terminus. Because when you think you know the answer, you're not going to explore anymore and you're not going to ask anything. So the most important thing for your listeners to note really here is not to take anything I say as true or gospel, or I'm not trying to tell anyone anything or dictate anything, but I'm really ho hoping that the things I say will make them think maybe about experiences they've had in their life and maybe see things that's happened to them in a, in a different light and cause them to think. Well, here's our first opportunity to do some real thinking. Simon, what is a placebo? Sure, yeah. I think placebo is a word that most people have heard of and most people have some basic understanding of what it is, if maybe not in detail. And the idea of the placebo is that it's a fake intervention, a fake medical intervention. So sometimes it can take the form of a sugar pill, which is claimed to be a, an aspirin or whatever, or a cancer drug or whatever it is. Sometimes it can be fake surgical intervention. So an incision is made, but no actual surgery is done and then stitches are put in but nothing's actually been done. Sometimes it can just be some kind words from the doctor. So it can take on various forms. And the traditional idea of it is that it's viewed as an intervention by the patient. So the patient is supposed to genuinely believe they're having some intervention happen to them, be it via a drug or surgery or whatever. So one view of it is that they believe in the efficiency of the drug that they're being given or the effectiveness of the surgery they're being given and their belief is sufficient to cure them another way of looking at it might be 
they respond to the authority of the doctor. So they see the white coat and that they see him as you know, or her as an authority figure. And it's the authority which causes them to become better. No one really knows, but they, these are traditional ideas of it. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think there's a bit more to it than that. And I think these initial ideas about it are a bit of a misconception. And I suspect misconception might be being deliberately encouraged. And maybe as we go on, we'll see why I think that and why I think it might be being encouraged. So there's some press on. So the way I have looked at medicines and health, it's been largely shaped by my the experiences I've had in life. And often in those cases, there's a lesson I could have learned right at the time, in some cases like 20 or 30 years ago. But I never really saw the experience in the right light and I discarded it because it didn't fit in with my ideas. And often this is because I thought I knew the answers. And so when I had an experience which pointed to something outside of those answers, I dismissed it. And we'll see some examples of that as I go along. And looking back on these things, I'm now able to see them for what they are. And that's what's caused me to look at things in slightly different light. So I think for me, the first time I ever came across the idea of a placebo was in Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Science. I'm sure many of your readers will have heard of the book. If they haven't, it's a fascinating book. And Ben Goldacre is a mainstream doctor and turned into a mainstream journalist. So he's not in any way a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. He's just completely mainstream. And his book outlines quite a lot of the fraudulent practices involved in the medical procedure, in the medical practice rather. And he does that from the position of being an insider. And all the fraud that he outlines is easily observable by, by anyone. It's not hidden away. It's not censored or anything. It's free for anyone to get. So the first thing I remember reading in it was about the effectiveness of drugs. So traditionally, the placebo is regarded as being 40% effective. I don't know quite how this figure is obtained, but this is the figure. Yes, astonishingly high figure. So that means that if you take 100 patients and you give a placebo to all of them, 40 of them will get better and the other 60 will either get worse or do nothing. I'll have the placebo, thank you. Because yeah, so presumably that's yeah, got less exactly. bad Side effects too, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll take that one. Thanks. <laughs> what? So it's an astonishingly high proportion. So, 40%. Yeah, yeah. Mental. So, and what this means is that if you're a drug manufacturer and you're making a drug, it's very difficult for you to establish that your drug is more effective than a placebo because the placebo is already such a high watermark. You've got to kind of hit a really high target to even get up that high. I'm glad it's a high bar, but it should be. If 40% are going to get better through a placebo, exactly i.e. Right. nothing. Yeah. So before you intervene with some sort of foreign agent that could perhaps make you really sick or do some serious, it might even kill you if you take some drugs. So yeah, I think it really had better be an extremely high bar, right? Yeah. So let's have a look at some of the techniques they use to achieve that then. So let's imagine that we were set up our own drug company we make a new drug, heaven forbid. Let's say we do some clinical trials. So we take some trial samples of people and we give them our drug, all of whom have got the, whatever the problem is we're trying to treat. And let's say we do five different clinical trials and we measure the effectiveness of the drug in each of these cases. 
And let's say just for the sake of argument, the first one shows 38% improvement, 38% effectiveness, should we say. Second one, 39. Next one, 40, 41, and 42. So what this tells me is this drug is no better than a placebo. In the case of the study that showed it's 38, what that means is it's actually doing worse, than the, which means it's actually harming you. So what these companies do, that they're under no obligation to make public the results of all these trials. As they, they I'm, get, I'm sorry to railroad, and you're hmm. spot on, but I've got to highlight this. As the Pfizer company did with their, they wanted a 75-year seal they wanted to close their findings on the COVID-1984, the pandemic, the scandemic, whatever you want to call it. They wanted to seal those files for 75 years. And it was only exactly. because of the amazing legal mind and the funding. So the legal mind of the ICANN, the ICANN decide people in America that said, no, 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 this is a Dell Big Tree outfit. People have got lots of opinions on Dell Big Tree. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is the fact that his lawyer, Aaron Siri, Aaron Siri was the one who got these damn documents unsealed. What? You want to seal your documents for 75 years? Why? Excuse me. Right, exactly. Aren't you the heroes? Aren't you saving yeah. the world from the Black yeah. Death yeah. Mark II? So why do you want to seal these documents for 75 years, basically to everyone who, who witnesses its dad? Like, uh, excuse me. And Aaron Siri, like whatever you say about Del Big Tree and whatever you say about I can decide and whatever you say about the high wire, this is the man who's been able to fund the lawyer, Aaron Siri, who got this stuff opened to the public. And without it, we'd be speculating now. Thank God, thank God we don't have to speculate because this lawyer, Aaron Siri, has smashed it on behalf of I can, I can decide. So you say what you like. Oh, he's a shill because he believes in germ theory and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but you know what? The whole freaking world believes in germ theory. That's what we're operating on. We can't fight them on a system that they're not respecting. We've got yeah. to go at them under their own system. And that's where this is powerful, is it not? Yeah, and it also, it kind of undermines what science really is. The idea of science is it's supposed to be open to all. So if someone does an experiment... We can hire a lab or go to some friend's company maybe someone else owns an environment that would be appropriate to do a test in, we could set up an experiment, do the same study, the same scientific experiment, and we ought to get the same results. This is That's the idea. how it's supposed to work. It reminds me this of a science experiment my friend and I did in physics. It's not quite the same as chemistry, obviously, but we were a bit confused about the idea that no matter how heavy an object was, a very light object or a very heavy object, if you dropped them from the same height at the same time, they would land at exactly the same time due to gravity. We were about 15 or 16 years old, my friend and I, Sarah Jessamine, and we weren't having it. We were like, no, that can't be true. Well, as children, what do you do? You experiment, don't you? You try something out. You test whether or not the authority is telling the truth. The authority being the science teacher, Mr. Robinson. He was our physics teacher. He was he was useless. But we did teach ourselves a really great lesson that day. So I grabbed an eraser, a Stadler Mars plastic eraser. Other erasers are available. I find this a great one. And she grabbed a wooden bench, another bench, a stool, a wooden stool. And it's probably, I don't know, a meter or so high, maybe a bit more, made of solid wood, pretty heavy thing. So I've got this little tiny rubber razor in my hand and she had this enormous science stool and we climbed up on top of the science benches which were quite high in our school and we stood on top of there and we made sure the eraser and the stool were at the same height 
and we dropped them. And they landed at exactly the same time. And we couldn't Adam and Eve it. There you go. We both laughed spontaneously and thought, no, we must have done it wrong. So we assumed we'd made a mistake on the experiment. We grabbed the eraser and the stool and we did it again. And the same thing happened again. By now, we knew it must be right that no matter how heavy these objects are, whether they're light or whether they're heavy, not taking into account, of course, aerodynamics, obviously a feather would be a different story. But in terms of the, the basic model of gravity, wooden stool, eraser, bang, they land at the same time. And the science bench, you know, it's not like we were dropping it from a 50-story building. A science bench is a meter and a half, two meters high, maybe, no, it can't be two meters, can it? It must be probably over a meter. It still worked. With us stood on top of it, of course, that would add, what well, I was probably about four and a half foot, wasn't I, back then, probably. Um, so we're adding a little bit of height on top of that one and a half meter bench, say. But still, even over that short distance, these objects were landing at the same time. And we tried it again and again because it was hilarious. We found it hysterically funny. <laughs> but that is exactly, we should be able to replicate. If we're told yeah. something is true, oh, this is how science works, then we should be able to replicate it. Like, I know that that's not exactly comparable because you're talking here medicine or, you know, chemistry plus medicine, if you like. And I'm sort of talking physics, but it's the same principle, is it not? Yeah, certainly. And it makes me think of a different experiment, which Ben Goldacre relates in Bad Science which I'd like to read to you. So he did this experiment with dogs. So he got three packs of dogs, which were separate from each other, separated them. And Ben Goldecker didn't do this himself. He writes about this. It's difficult with Ben Goldecker. With a lot of these things, it's hard to find out the references for where these stories come from. So I'd invite everyone to go and check into this for themselves. May I just check the spelling of Goldacre, please? Yeah, sure. Ben, as in B-E-N, and then Goldacre is G-O-L-D-A-C-H-R-E, and the book is called Bad Science. So let me talk about this experiment he did. So he got these three groups of dogs, and the first group was a control group, but with them he did nothing. The second group, he gave to them orally, twice a day or whatever, a sugar solution with nothing in it, just sugar. And with the third group, he got a... Sugar solution, the same sugar solution, but mixed with an immunosuppressant drug. Now, an immunosuppressant drug, whether you think it actually suppresses your immune system, I I don't really know or care. But the important thing is that you can measure the effect of it by taking a drop of blood, sticking it on a slide, and measuring the white blood cell count. White blood cell count is easy to do. You can just stain the blood with a purple dye, as I understand it. And this will dye the white blood cells. And there's a lot fewer of those than the red blood cells. And you can just simply count the blood cells, surface areas the, the, uh, on the slide. So the idea with these, um, these third group of dogs, they had this immunosuppressant mixed in with a sugar solution. And what he did was he measured the blood counts in all the dogs. And obviously the sugar dogs, they didn't do anything. The control dogs, obviously they didn't do anything. And sure enough, the ones with the immunosuppressant were observed to have a decreased white blood cell count. Okay, all, all plain sailing so far. He carried on with this for a few weeks. And then after a, a few weeks, he, with the third group of dogs, he scrapped the sugar solution with the immunosuppressant. And instead, he gave them the same sugar solution that the second group of dogs were being given. So now we've got three groups of dogs, one with nothing, two with sugar solution, Three also with sugar solution, but who used to have the immunosuppressant. 
And each time the sugar solution was administered to the third group, a diminution in the white blood cell count was observed. So what happened was somehow the dog's bodies knew that they were supposed to reduce the white blood cell count, and they did. This is according to Ben Goldacre. So what does that tell us about placebo? Obviously, the sugar solution is the placebo here because it's, a, it's not a drug. But this can't be now based on something that the dogs know because the dogs didn't know they had an immunosuppressant in the first place. It also, we can assume, can't be based on authority unless we think the dog would observe the authority of a white coat. So this now seems to be something entirely different. And I remember reading this story and I just thought, oh, the placebo works in mysterious ways, right? But looking back on it now, is this really the classic example of a placebo? I I think not. I think it's something completely different. So there are other examples of placebo. So one author in this field is a guy called Joe Dispenza, who I'm sure many of your readers would have heard of. He's written a book called You Are the Placebo which comes highly recommended. I haven't read it myself. And I'm just going to quote you a little bit of it here. So in 1996, surgeon Bruce Mosley in Houston studied 10 military men with knee injuries. They were limping and they were walking using sticks. Two were given debridement surgery, and that means scraping away cartilage from the joint. Which is extremely painful, were given right? Lav- That's nasty, isn't imagine, that? yeah. That's nasty. That so like, good, I've never it? had it, but it's not. that is nasty. It's one of the, you take a quarter stone injection, there's a lot of things you can do before you have to get stuff scraped away. That is the pits. That's the pits. That's like trefining. That's the old trefining. This is not, this is not. Trepanning, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, depending on how, yeah, yeah. Trepanning or whatever you guys say. This is like saying, oh, your head hurts. We're going to drill a hole in your skull so that your headache goes away. (laughs) Well, you laugh, but that's what this is, right? That is what this is. Yeah, I mean, imagine they gave them a anaesthetic while they were doing it. Oh, well, that's very kind of them, isn't that? Yeah, lovely. Yeah, nice, yeah. Lovely. Yeah, nice one. So the next three were given lavage, which basically means rinsing the joint with high-pressure water. Also, it kind of sounds quite painful to me. And five of them were given sham surgery. So they were cut open, unlike the other two who were cut open and something was done to them. The last five were cut open and nothing was done to them. And then they're all stitched up. And then the effects were observed over a two-year period. And in all cases, the, the effects were the same. There was no difference between the groups. Now, initially when I read this and I thought, well, 10 people, that doesn't sound very much. But later, apparently, the experiment was repeated with 180 people and the, the results were the same. So this means that in this case, the placebo is the sham surgery and that worked as well as the other surgery. So all these procedures worked, by the way, in that patient seemed to get better. So this just goes through the power of the placebo. So what it means is if you believe you're having an intervention or you're having an intervention, in 40% of the cases, you're going to get better, regardless of whether you're actually getting the intervention or not. That's as simple as that. So, Isn't that but painful? With the, the example of the dogs, it's difficult to see it as the dogs knowing anything. I don't really think the dogs do know. And maybe they do, and I just don't know. I think know, that's but... worse. I think it's worse that they don't. Yeah. In some respects, because the more conscious you are, the more you have an opportunity to intervene in your own destiny, your own situation. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, later on I'll come back to that. But just before I, I do, I just wanted to talk about a slightly different but related concept, which is called a nocebo. So please, most people, please. I think, have heard of a placebo. They've heard the word. But very few people had heard of nocebo. And I 
So a placebo is where you're given an intervention, either a drug or surgery or something else, but it's fake. And the placebo causes you to get better to the same degree, in some cases, better degree than the actual medication. So that, this is basically the power of the mind or whatever you want. So a nocebo is the opposite. It's where you're given, in psychological terms, what's called an injunction by the doctor. So the doctor will, instead of telling you something positive, he will tell you that you're, you've got cancer or you're not going to get better or you're ill. And the authority of the doctor makes you ill, which kind of sounds kind of hard to believe. So let me read an example here. Is this from Dr. Joanna Van Leer? It is. It is. Our senior medical officer. It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify, Joanna, while, while Simon finds his notes, Joanna Van Leer is not technically a doctor, but you know what? If you wanted to listen to somebody who's going to help you get better, it might be Joanna Van Leer. She's the co-author of TV Delusion. She's very well researched. And let's face it, both Simon, myself, and my husband, Tim, when we get sick or we're not happy about something, we listen to her she gives us helpful interventions, often based on Chinese medicine, often based on herbalism and whatever else has been demonized. But even like that doesn't mean to say she doesn't study mainstream science. She does, and she provides us with a lot of information. So with great respect to Joanna and Delay, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, I'm just going to read this text verbatim here. It's got some medical words in it, which I might pronounce wrong. So I'll do my best. That's all right. My uh, people but... are used to me, and I can barely pronounce cricket yeah, correctly, yeah. so you just crack <laughs> on, it's fine. They're used to me, go ahead. Here we go. So the following is an example of nocebo and placebo conjoined. In the 20th century, this case was recorded, involved a Mr. Wright and his cancerous tumours. Mr. Wright suffered from advanced lymphosarcoma, which is a malignant tumour of the lymphatic tissue, which I looked up on Wikipedia just prior to this. But he had faith in a final resort, a horse serum-derived substance called crebiosum, probably pronounced wrong. He requested, I think he'd seen this in a journal, and he requested crebiosum injections from his physician. And sure enough, his tumours shrank dramatically on X-ray scans, presumably his pain with them. He spent several months in good health before reports came out, presumably on the TV or in journals, stating that crebiosum had no cancer-fighting properties. Then Mr. Wright's tumours returned, visible and larger than ever. So this is the nocebo. The injunction has been delivered by the journal or the magazine. And the, presumably the placebo effect that he perceived initially has been reversed by the injunction from the psychological perspective. So he went to see the physician and his physician chose to lie to him. They told him that crebiosin did indeed cure cancer, but that he needed a much stronger dose for the full effect. They could started sham treatments with saline injections, and this caused his cancer to apparently disappear completely again. So now we're back to placebo again. So we've gone from placebo to nocebo to placebo again. Mr. Wright lived in good health for several months until a final review by the American Medical Association conclusively stated that crabiosin was a useless drug. Remember, this is a drug that he hadn't had at this stage because he'd had a saline injection. When Mr. Wright learned this, his tumours reappeared and he was dead within days of admission to hospital. Stop there. Wow. Please, may you just repeat that? Okay. Yeah. So let's just re rewind slightly then to his tumours had come back and he was 
told that he needed a stronger dose of this miracle drug. But instead of being given a stronger dose of the miracle drug, he was given a stronger dose of saline injections. And this seemingly caused his cancer to disappear completely. But then later, he heard this review on the, by the American Medical Association that the drug which he thought he had, but hadn't had, was useless. And at this point, his tumors reappeared and he was back in the same stage as he was before. And because all hope had seemingly been dashed by the way they reported it, he died. But you know what? This stinks. This stinks. It stinks, it stinks, it stinks. I'm a sportswoman. And I've seen miracles in front of my eyes. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, your sons and daughters need to play sport. I don't care what it is. And I have to be honest, team sport teaches you more brutal lessons than individual sport. That's not to say individual sport doesn't teach you, but certainly when you're young, team sports, you learn the harshest of harsh lessons in these environments. It's tough, it's nasty, but it it lasts and it's real. And you know what? It's what it is to be human. Sometimes, okay, I don't want to dig into this, but I'm going to have to now based on that, because just what you said about the nocebo and placebo effect is so painful and so true. Okay, let's go for it. Let's reopen the scars that I carry, right? So I played in a county cricket team without being too funny about it. If I'd been a guy instead of a girl, I'd be getting a full-time professional wage for playing in that team. I was in a what you guys would call a major county cricket team. And the training was tough and it was Fair. It was just, but it was tough. And you know what? This whole placebo, nocebo thing, well, it is what it is. But if you do your best and you honestly, if you honestly give your all, you'll rarely come up short. And that's all I can say about it. If you put everything in that you've got, I don't claim to understand God, the universe, the creator, Buddha, whatever you want to call it. But I'm telling you now, if you give everything you've got, you get a hell of a lot more out of life than if you can't be bothered to try your best. And if your best is garbage, the fact that you're trying your best really, really, really counts for something. And I don't mean with pounds, shillings, pence. I don't mean with gold, silver, and bronze medals. It just counts for something in life with humans. It's real. It's visceral. It's something And it's nothing to be ashamed of. Like, if you're a coach for a local kids team, football, cricket, whatever, well, respect to you. You are giving something to those children that you cannot even possibly calculate. If you realized what you are to those children, you'd freak out and you'd quit. (laughs) Like, these kids worship you. You're their coach. You know, you're their hero. Whether you like it or not, that's who you are. Because these kids want to believe in something. They want to be better. They want to put everything they've got into you. This is something which approaches the placebo effects. If you watch things like the, the Mighty Ducks, what's that stupid one with the... Sorry, you're going to have to help me out. You might not be able to tell me because you're too clever to know what this is. It's the one with those stupid Disney characters and they drink this special juice and they go on to win this tournament. They shouldn't win it in basketball. It's something like space it's called space jam the movie but these disney characters who go on to win it are just completely incredible i literally can't remember something to do with space jam all right 
and it's Disney characters. Not something I've ever heard of, I'm afraid. Well, you, but, uh, well, you wouldn't have because you've actually spent your life reading books and doing interesting things. <laughs> but the problem is, this is like a mass version. Instead of reading hours of Dr. Jordan Peterson, never mind reading the Bible, screw reading, oh, forget Freud, forget Solzhenitsyn, never mind reading these things. If you can at least just watch Space Jam, and I hate Walt Disney because I've got some things to call Walt Disney. Walt Disney couldn't even get into a war during the war. That should tell you there's a problem with Walt Disney. But anyway, the Space Jam is a group of basketball players who don't believe they can make it. They drink this special juice, this special potion, and they make it and they win. It's a complete placebo. It's water. It's water where they've written special champion juice or whatever on the outside of it. This is real. I've seen it. I've seen it in teams I've played in. I've seen it. Not because we believe we were drinking anything or taking anything, but just because we believe the coach or we believe the captain or we, we believed in what they said, that we could be better and we could do better. What a fantastic human story. And what is wrong with that? What is wrong? Well, Absolutely. on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with that. But Simon, there's a darker side to that, isn't there? Yeah, and I guess the authority could go both ways. And, you know, if the TV tells you there's something going on, but you can look out the window and see that it isn't, then you might think it's going on even though it isn't, right? I think we all know what we're talking about. Let me carry on with this, though, because I've got another story which I'd like to tell you, which kind of backs up what you just said about the magical mystery juice. And in this particular story, actually, you're the hero. So... This should be quite interesting for your listeners. So the other two stories I've told so far, they're kind of of an anecdotal nature. The Ben Goldacre's dogs and the guy with the cancer. It's hard to verify these stories. But I have a story of my own, which also illustrates the same kind of thing. So I don't know if you remember, Sarah, but about three years ago, I used to have asthma and you cured me. Let me fill your listeners in on some of the details about how this came to Past. So it's about three years ago before this scandemic. And oh. I think we we're in the pub. And you mentioned to me that asthma was a scam. And yes, sir. I'd realized that it, I'd, I'd suffered from asthma for all, all my life up until that point. And at that time, I was feeling slightly better. And so what I decided to do was to stop taking the inhalers I used to take regularly for it. And I stopped taking the inhalers. And sure enough, my asthma got better. Now, I did have one or two times when I felt bad, like I was having an asthma attack. But I had this one inhaler, which I'd been, which I nursed for two years. Normally, they last about three months or less than that, one month sometimes. But I had this one and I had it for two years. Now, I'll explain how this works for your listeners. For anyone who's had asthma, they'll know this already. But for other people, it, it might be a new thing for them. But when you use the inhaler, you get a squirt of gas goes into your mouth and you inhale it and it has a certain taste and the taste is the taste of the drug that's the so-called active ingredient but the drug isn't the thing that makes it squirt the thing that makes it squirt is a thing called propellant and that's usually an inert gas i don't know what inert gas they use maybe nitrogen or something but i'm just guessing there i could be wrong but it's, it's basically a gas which is under pressure and that is in the main part of the little cylinder thing that you press and when that gas escapes, it brings some of the drug with it and you get a squirt of mainly gas, but a bit of the drug. And the drug has a very obvious taste. So you know when that inhaler is empty because it no longer tastes of the drug. 
And there'd be no doubt about that. I'd had this one for two years. And after about the first six months, it basically ran out. It was on its last legs anyway. And I could tell that, that I wasn't getting any of the drug, but I was getting some of the propellant. And, but nevertheless, when I used it, it stopped the attack. And when I compare this with one that actually did have some of the drug in it, it actually worked better than the one that did have the drug in it. And occasionally I, I tried both. So initially I thought, oh yeah, it's just the placebo. But the idea of the placebo is that it relies on the fact that the patient doesn't know it's a placebo. They think they're getting the drug. And often when they do trials on these things, they're given them in double blind tests. So a double blind test is that the patient is blind, but also the doctor is blind. So the doctor gives you the drug and the doctor thinks it's a drug as well. They're, but unbeknown to them, they've been given a placebo to give to you. So the doctor doesn't know and you don't know. And the argument is that if this doesn't happen, the doctor might adopt a more dismissive body posture and give the game away to the patient. So the placebo effect will be reduced. But in this particular case, I knew damn well there's no drug in there because I could taste it. So I was kind of confused by this. and. I kind of put it down. I knew it wasn't the placebo effect because it didn't fit the criteria that we've just discussed. So I thought that it might be some kind of ritual. And this was actually pointed out by a friend of mine. I won't say her name, but she pointed out that it could be like a, a ritual type thing. And that was my kind of working hypothesis for a while. Although I didn't really believe, I don't really believe in that kind of thing anyway, but I didn't really have any other idea. But after a while, even the propellant ran out. So when I was taking that same inhaler, I squirted it. And instead of getting a squirt of anything, you just get a little mechanical creak of the, the return spring creaking. And absolutely nothing was coming out at all. And at that point, it stopped working. So this is the interesting thing. So at that point, it ceased to function. So in my mind, some effect had been transferred to that propellant somehow. And when I kind of realized this, it reminded me of the stories people say about homeopathy. Now, I'm not a believer in homeopathy. I don't know anything about homeopathy. I don't think it works. But that's just my view, right? That my opinion. Any, anyone else is free to disagree. But the way, they, the way people say it does work, if it does, is that initially it has some kind of drug or chemical in it, and you dilute it over and over again with water. And then you take the resulting solution you've made, which is dilute, and you take one part of that and dilute it a thousand times again, and you keep doing that. And the idea is that the, the imprint of the drug is somehow imprinted on the water. And when you take the water, it's somehow got a memory. To me, it seems bonkers, but this is the story. But this reminded me a little bit of, the, of this propellant coming out of this asthma thing and, that, and the fact that it stopped to work when the propellant ended. So that's just an interesting story from my own experience. And the good thing about these stories, of course, Probably your listeners will have had something like this has happened to them. And it'd be great for them to think about that rather than to think about these anecdotal things from the internet, which are interesting, but I think of limited use because we can't verify them. I had a similar experience with asthma. As you know, Simon, I told you this story way back before I cured you. And I say that with tongue in cheek because obviously I'm not taking credit for curing you. I just shared with you what I had done and what had happened to me. And you took that and did your own thing with it. So you cured yourself. I just shared my ideas with you. I don't know, I was probably about 10 when I was diagnosed with asthma and I was on steroids and the reliever inhaler that you were just talking about. I think it's, it's salbutamol. I think that's the, the blue one. Salbutamol, that was the one that I was on anyway as, as a reliever 
if I needed something to help me when I felt like I was about to have an asthma attack or I felt I was struggling for breath. Anyway, I used to have to take also an oral steroid, also by way of inhaler, twice a day, morning and night. I think one was, I I used Becatide. I used lots of them, actually. I'm not going to bother listing them. Don't We don't want to advertise pharma (laughs) drugs on here anyway. Disgusting. Anywho, I was a postie when I hit about 19. I decided to go and work as a postman, as a postie on a bicycle. And I was doing it while studying an additional A-level. I decided that I wanted to go to drama school. So I was doing a a full-time job whilst also doing another part-time job because I was earning lots of money to save up to go to drama school. And at the same time, I was teaching voluntarily in a secondary school. I was teaching in the drama department. Yeah, I really was. Anyhow, I got this new job as a postie because I really fancied cycling around on a bike and posting letters. Don't ask me why. It just sounded like a fun thing to do at the time. The only problem was you had to get up really, really early back then. It was three o'clock in the morning. And I like to get up early, but maybe like five, six, seven, not so much seven, but five and six a.m. Three a.m. is like the middle of the night to me. I definitely need to be sleeping at that time. So I was waking up and feeling extremely disorientated. I couldn't cope with the early mornings, so much so that I felt actually not just disorientated, but unbalanced. I felt like I was drunk or something. And I didn't drink at all then. I was an athlete. I had dreams of going to drama school. So I had a sensible head on my shoulders. I was a teetotaler and I was waking up every morning effectively drunk, at least cognitively drunk and experiencing many of the same symptoms of not being able to balance properly and all sorts, kind of dangerous when you're cycling a bicycle. Anyhow, I started this job After two or three weeks, the start time dropped to 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m., which is much better. They'd only been getting me in at 3 a.m. whilst I was still training. So I was quite relieved about that, that that wasn't a permanent. Now, why do I tell you this long preamble? Well, because the discombobulated feelings, the feelings of complete, I don't know, I had no idea where I was when I was being woken at 3 a.m. It had caused me to forget to take my inhalers in the mornings. I hadn't taken my inhalers in the mornings or the evenings, actually, because I was going to bed earlier because I was so tired for three weeks. Now, this preventative drug was supposed to prevent me from dying. It was supposed to prevent me from having an asthma attack and dying. And I hadn't taken it for three weeks. And I genuinely believed at that time, about 18, 19, I was 18, 19 years old. I genuinely believed if I didn't take this stuff, I would die. And, you know, my mother was very serious and very strict that I should take this stuff and take it seriously. I'd been taking it seriously for nine years taking this stuff religiously morning and night, morning and night, morning and night. Yeah. Anyway, I was still alive and I was loving it. I was even fitter than before. I was lighter than before. I got used to the early mornings and 4.30 wasn't as bad as 3 a.m. So I was coping. And anyway, I told my mother and reluctantly, because I, I was worried that she would be very annoyed. And she was, she was fuming. She was extremely angry with me, telling me I was terribly irresponsible and all of this stuff. She had a big go at me about it. And I said, but I'm alive, like I'm not dead. And she wasn't having any of it. She was rather annoyed. Anyway, because I was irked by her attitude rather than, oh, this is great. Maybe you don't need to take these drugs. She was angry that I'd been irresponsible and I might have died and all of this nonsense. Anyway, because she'd made me so cross, I decided, well, stuff you. I'm going to carry on not taking them and see what happens. So in a way, that kind of helped me because I reacted against her negative reaction and decided to carry on. And and three more weeks down the line, and I was still fine. That was six weeks of taking no inhalers. And I, I effectively never really took them again. Yeah, and that interesting. taught me really a massive, massive lesson. Mm. So yeah, that's at the time what I shared with you, Simon, and, yeah. and off you went. You know, There you go. It's, I don't think we're being told everything, are we? Not at all. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? 
it just goes to show what, what a big part psychology has got to play in all this. And the, the trouble is, of course, it's, is where psychology has a little bit of a negative connotation. If you say to someone, no, your disease or your ailment is psychological, often this is interpreted as, oh, you're, it means you don't believe them or you think they're making it up or they're trying to get attention. But it, it, as we'll, we'll see in a bit, it isn't like this at all. What it does, it underlines the difference between, it, this, sorry, the similarity or the relatedness between the mind and body. So we're always taught from a young age that the mind is one thing and the body is another and never the two shall meet. But in fact, we can see here clear examples of psychology come into play in terms of how well we are and what we think about ourselves and who said what to us. And I just think this is very, very interesting. But going back to that transference idea that we were talking about a minute ago, I think there is an example of a nocebo transference as well. So one thing I did notice a few years ago is that lots of people now seem to be wheat intolerant. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing, Sarah. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So I can't believe this happened like a thousand years ago when we were living in mud huts and stuff that everyone was intolerant to wheat. But now it seems that lots and lots of people are intolerant to it. And it makes me wonder why that suddenly is. And with such a big change like that, I think there must be some kind of reason behind it. I don't think it's just a coincidence. So some people have said that some... It's glyphosate, which is a chemical used as a weed killer when the wheat is, which is sprayed on the wheat around when it's harvested. And it may be that that was the cause of some of that, but then it could be also a transference. So if you eat some wheat and it's got glyphosate on it, your body is going to become ill and also remember that association between the wheat and the glyphosate. Now, next time you, maybe when you eat some wheat, your body will remember that it's got ill in conjunction with the wheat and the glyphosate. And even though the glyphosate is not present, it might still make you ill. And this is like the opposite of Van Goldacre's dogs, isn't it? Where they had the immunosuppressant, or maybe it's kind of similar kind of thing, I don't know. So one thing that occurred to me is, why isn't there any research into this? Why is there no research into this psychological aspect? And I think the answer is pretty obvious because there's no no money behind it. If it ever became known that you could cure yourself with psychological means or the drug companies will go out of business. So there's no way that knowledge is going to be explored or investigated, which is a shame because there's a lot of health exploration and research to be done, which will never be done just due to the financial money-based society we, we find ourselves in. And the, the other thing I, that, that occurred to me is the traditional view of the placebo is based around the authority of either the drug or the doctor. And I think that traditional idea of a placebo might be encouraged because although the placebo is you might view as detracting from the drug in fact it relies on the assertion that the drug works and the belief that the drug works so really it's kind of backing it up whereas these ideas of ritual transference or whatever they actually detract from that and maybe that's another reason why these things are just simply not investigated so I was going to move on from SIBO, and I wanted to talk about TMS. So TMS is another recently discovered phenomenon, and it seems to be a, another link between psychological trauma-based, I don't know, trauma-based a- activities and a resulting physical phenomenon that's the result of them. So TMS stands for tension myoneural syndrome. Myoneural just means muscle and nerve. So really this name isn't really 
it's just describing the effects rather than telling what the cause is. And this comes from a book by Dr. Sarno, another book that comes highly recommended. And the book here is called The Mind-Body Prescription. So this happened to a friend of mine, I won't say her name, but she had a sudden bout of prolonged and extreme back pain a few years ago. And it was very distressing for her. And it was, it's, I mean, it seemed like agony she was in. It was all very upsetting. And she went to the doctor and they gave her three choices. The first choice was injections in the base of her spine, which basically would treat the pain and that was it. And these injections have about 10% chance of causing permanent paralysis. So what that means is with these injections, had she elected to have them, there'd be a 10% chance that she'd be in a wheelchair permanently. The second choice that the doctors gave her was that she could do nothing and she'd become permanently disabled. So kind of pretty similar, really. And the last choice was surgery, and which wasn't guaranteed to be successful. But she read the book on TMS, I think probably the one I just mentioned by Dr. Sarno. And what Dr. Sarno says is that trauma we have in childhood or in early life, psychological trauma, can later manifest itself in physical phenomenon. So what happens is your trauma, rather than being expressed or made obvious to your conscious mind, turns out by your body adopting defensive postures and defensive mechanisms. They involve tightening of the muscles, and this can lead to intense pain. And she wasn't the only person who discovered this. It's happened to another friend of mine as well who did a similar kind of thing. In fact, he was the one who told my friend about it. So she read this book. It took her a long time to persuade herself that this might be the case, but eventually she was able to gain control of the situation and alleviate her own pain. And now she doesn't really have any kind of problems in that respect at all. And this is without any surgery, without these injections in her spine and without any wheelchairs being involved. So it kind of just goes to show how you can cure yourself of these chronic conditions. I'm not saying this can happen in all cases, but I think it can happen in a lot of cases. It's extraordinary. And you're right, of course, the research will never be done into this. This is something that will never, ever be studied. So when people challenge you and they say, well, where's the evidence for that? Where are the studies? Well, obviously, they're not going to study this because then they will lose money and they'll lose more than money as well when people find out what they've done. Let's go back a little now, though, to the nocebo effect because it shocks me. I actually think that this is what COVID-1984 was. So they told you you would get sick. They told you what the symptoms would be. They told you exactly how you would feel when you were sick. Yeah. And then many, many unthinking people manifested those exact symptoms. I think so. I mean, basically, we're talking about a disease with the same symptoms as the flu, the same case rate as the flu over, over a group of population, the same mortality rate as the flu. And in the years when this disease was supposed to have been rife, the flu was non-existent. So in all other years of human existence, the flu has been there, causing this set of symptoms at a certain rate and killing a certain number of people. In the two years when COVID, with the scandemic, was running, flu had gone, and now the flu has come back. So they bombard you with propaganda on the TV about how this disease exists and how it's going to kill everyone. And then as soon as you get a snuffle, what's the first thing you do? You go and get one of those tests. The tests are fake, so they tell you that you've got COVID. And then you go down to the doctor 
and the doctor's telling you you've got COVID. So immediately the nocebo kicks in, you get worse, and then you end up being put on a ventilator and then you end up dead. Dr. Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1993 for his polymerase chain reaction test, the PCR test, polymerase chain reaction test. PCR, he stated yep. extremely clearly that it cannot be used to detect infectious diseases and that it must not be used to detect infectious diseases. It's not designed for that. It can't tell you if you are sick. Yeah, so these people are getting sick because they've been told that they're getting sick and then they're dying because they were told that that's exactly what would happen. It's like you hear about the chemotherapy trials, the chemotherapy experiments, whereby some people were getting chemo and their hair were falling out. But some of the other people who thought they were getting chemo, and really they weren't, it was just some saline solution, their hair was also falling out. Yeah. Isn't that exactly what we've just experienced? That's right. And it's the same as a disease called medical student's disease, which we write about in our book. Yes. So this is where medical students are studying a certain disease in their classes. And a certain percentage of them will get the symptoms of that disease. I must stress, it's not that they think, this is not a psychological thing, it's not that they think they've got the symptoms, they actually get the symptoms. So for instance, if they're studying measles, they'll actually be covered in red spots. It's not something that they've made up. They don't say, oh, I think I've got the measles. They actually have got it. And so it's a pretty powerful thing that the effect psychology has over us is very powerful. And isn't that how the whole scam's been pulled off? Like, we're much more intelligent about... And not just that scam as well. So, and many scams in the past. So, another great example of this is polio. So, originally, when polio was first discovered, it was called, it had a different name. And just let these two names resonate in you and see how they make you feel different. So, the first name, the original name, was infant paralysis syndrome. So, this concentrates on an effect, something you can can visualize, you can see a manifestation. So, something that's tangible and real. So you see an infant infant, and you can see that the infant's paralyzed, either partially or completely. And then after a while, this name got taken away and the name polio was put in its place and was blamed on a virus. But in fact, of course, the original paralysis wasn't a virus, it was DDT poisoning. Quite. So, but now you've got this called polio and suddenly people's attitude towards it has changed. Somehow they don't see it as the same condition as the infant paralysis syndrome. They see it as this new thing called polio, even though the physical effects are the same and it affects the same people at the same rate, just like with flu and COVID, you give it a new name and suddenly the attitudes change towards it. And of course, it also happens with this thing called long COVID, doesn't it, Sarah? So this is a, an ailment which has been going around for years and years and years and years. And I'm just going to read out here a few names this has had over the years, starting back from when I was a kid and coming on to the present day. I'll read them quite slowly, and try you and your readers, try and get a feel for how they, they make you feel when you hear these words. But bear in mind, these all refer to the same syndrome. So the first one I came across was called ME, which was called myalgia encephalitis. Next one, post-viral syndrome. And then after that, yuppie flu. And then fibromyalgia, and then chronic fatigue syndrome, and now the same thing is called long COVID. So with each of those things, for me, when I hear the long words like fibromyalgia and COVID, I start getting a bit frightened. 
But when I hear something like post-viral syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, I think it's something I'm just going to get over if I get a good bit of kit. I don't if know how I'm, you feel about those. Well, words. if only. You see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> if only, but depends on your level of belief in the bent system, doesn't it? Your level of belief, your personal responsibility. It's, this is all hooked up with that, is it not? Like it, it's completely tragic because a lot of these so-called diseases, well, they're politicized, aren't they? Yeah. From the off, yeah. they're completely politicized. And it's a great shame because people are not even a fraction of what they could be if they just realized they're being lied to by the medical yeah. industrial complex. And it's a business. They're not here to help you. Like with many things, they're taking your own fear and they're turning it around and using it as a weapon against you as part of a psychological war. Well, I think COVID-1984 is a great example of the nocebo effects. The nocebo effects. Because they told you, oh, these are the symptoms. If you do this, then this might happen. And people are locked in the homes are isolated. They had no other sources of information. They were just getting this constant propaganda. Oh, well, this will happen if you do. Well, yeah. Well, if you tell somebody you're getting chemo, their hair falls out. The fact that they aren't on chemo at all doesn't matter. They still had no hair as a consequence of thinking that they were on chemo. This harks back to David Icke getting banned. He was banned from everywhere, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Very, very early on, April, May. No, earlier than that, March, April, I would say. March, April of 2020 for saying there was no virus. He literally said on the Brian Rose, what do you call those things? They're long form interviews. Brian Rose from London Real interviews people for two, three hours. Is it londonreal.tv, something like that? It's the freedom platform, he calls it anyway. And it must be if he's had David Icke on like eight times. Anyway, David literally said, there is no virus, which in March, April of 2020 was an extremely brave thing to say. And I have to credit yourself and Joanna van der Leer here, Simon, because both of you two guys said that as well. You said it before I'd heard David Icke say it. I heard David Icke say it end of March, beginning of April on one of those Rose Icke interviews. But you told me in person this on about the 14th of March, somewhere around there when we were flying back via London from Fort Worth to France after I'd done the Fort Worth Ultramarathon. And I remember we went for dinner and you you were telling us absolutely not. And you said, even if it is real, it's not even a very good flu because it was actually killing people less than a good flu would, if you can pardon the crassness of that expression. Anyway, he wasn't just spouting. He wasn't just saying there is no virus from nowhere. He'd done his homework. In fact, and we know that since that time, documents that Gemma O'Doherty had revealed that came from the government show that they do not have evidence that the virus has ever been isolated. They don't have it. We literally have documents to say that, oh, we have no knowledge of when and how this virus was isolated. She's got the papers in her hand. I've seen the videos where she's reading them to us. Bear in mind, of course, that nobody has ever isolated any virus. Nobody has ever seen any virus because they're too small. Doesn't exist. Nobody has ever proved that a virus is responsible for the symptoms it's supposed to cause. And they also defy common sense. So, So, for instance, here's a basic common sense thing about a virus. Let's say you've got the flu and you're poorly in bed and I'm well. Then I would expect to find the virus in you and not in me. This is common sense, right? But in fact, those viruses are found in everyone. Those alleged viruses are found in everyone. So what that means is we can subject this to what's called free variable analysis. And that is if you change a variable, and which is assumed to be a cause, 
and the effect doesn't change. It means that that variable is a free variable, which means that it's not related to that cause. This is basic mathematics. And that, that's what happens with viruses. They allegedly take samples from people and they put them under an electron microscope and you get these funny black dots, which they claim are viruses. But they're found in you and me alike, even though one of us is ill and one of us is not. And that's how we know that they're not responsible for disease at all. It's that well, it's simple. like the poor dead Kerry Mullis. He wins the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1993 for his polymerase chain reaction test. That is the PCR test, by the way, guys, a polymerase chain reaction test. Yes, doesn't that sound very clever? Well, that's what it is. And he said, this cannot be used to detect infectious disease. It can't tell you whether you're ill or not. And he said this the whole way along. It's been used for HIV and it's now been used for COVID-1984. And when will you people, you sheeple, wake up and realise that that is the case? He's been saying it all along. He won the damn prize. He won the yeah. Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1993 for the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test. And he says himself, it cannot, it cannot, it not can, it cannot be used to detect infectious disease. It can't tell you whether you're sick or not. What is wrong with you? What is wrong yeah. with you, sheeple? It's painful to me because it's it's so in your face. Like, why will they not listen to these people, Simon? Yeah. Kerry Mullis invented the damn test. Why? It's like not listening to the the original painter of the Mona Lisa. Like, what is that problem? What is wrong with them? Another cornerstone in the psychological warfare is the idea of communicability, isn't it? So the idea is that you're infectious and you can pass this on to people. And that's why they forced everyone to wear the fear muzzle. But not everyone. Not everyone, yeah. <laughs> but they've done experiments with this. So the idea is that if you're ill and I'm not, we should be able to pass that disease on in some way by taking some bodily fluid and passing it on. So they tried things by taking a, a sputum sample and they've fed that to soldiers from someone who's ill to someone who's not ill a blood sample, take a blood sample, inject it in one of the other soldiers. They've tried all this. And in not one case, to the best of my knowledge, has any transference or communicability ever been demonstrated in any experiment. So we have this idea of this communicable disease, but there's no science behind the communicability of it. There's no experiment that anyone has ever done or could do that demonstrates this to be true. Well, the own CDC papers say, quote, it is believed... Yeah, I quoted that right. It is believed yeah. that influenza virus passes from human to human by droplets. It is believed. It is believed. Hello, sheeple. Wakey, wakey, sheeple. You've got the magic word. It the is magic believed. word believe. I'll just read the section in the interest of clarity from the journal that I was going on about the meta study. Mm. So this is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is the CDC website. The title of it is, for those who want to look it up, it's... Non-pharmaceutical measures for pandemic influenza in non-healthcare settings, personal protective and environmental measures. And that was from May 2020. It says volume 26, number five, May 2020. So this is non-pharmaceutical measures for pandemic influenza in non-healthcare settings, personal protective and environmental measures. And I read this at the time and I was looking at it because I was interested in proving that masks don't work. And worse than that, they could be dangerous. And this study is really helpful. It does say this is a meta study. So it's looked at all of the previous influenza pandemics in the 20th century. And it hasn't actually got much information, if any, about the one in the 21st century 
i.e. what I call the pandemic. But anyway, this study has taken into account all of the previous studies about influenza pandemics. And I was getting excited about the masks and all of this, but there was something that bowled me over, something that completely blew my mind. I haven't read any medical journals up to this point. This was my first foray into reading actual journals. And this, this line is ridiculous. It says, most influenza virus infections cause mild and self-limiting disease. Only a small fraction of case patients require hospitalization. Therefore, influenza virus infections spread mainly in the community. Influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory droplets, but the size distribution of particles responsible for transmission remains unclear. And in particular, there is a lack of consensus on the role of fine particle aerosols in transmission. Let me just give the meat of that again. Influenza virus is believed. Influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory droplets. What do you mean believed? Why aren't you citing the study where we've proven that? Because if we don't know how virus particles are passed from human to human, then we don't know anything about transmission. Transmission might not even exist in that case. What do you mean believe? I'm, you know, just repeating what the things I was saying at the time. There might have been a few more swear words in it, if I'm going to be honest. I was explaining to Tim, my husband, what I was reading, and I I couldn't believe it. Influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory droplets, but the size distribution of particles responsible for transmission remains unclear. (laughs) Never mind that. See how they obfuscate. Oh, but the size distribution of particles that are responsible remains unclear. Well, it's unclear whether it even is transmitted between human to human, because it says that it is believed, influenza virus is believed. And in particular, there is a lack of consensus on the role of fine particle aerosols in transmission. So eventually I got to the mask stuff and they don't work and and whatever, but I just literally could not understand. I could not believe they were basing all of this stuff on belief. It's just another belief. These things are in plain sight. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist and go digging around things in places. It's because it's all there open for all to see. That was the moment. That was the moment. My remaining faith, any remaining faith that I might have had in modern medicine was completely shattered. (laughs) They're not doing science. They're doing marketing and sales. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, did you mention earlier there there might be some things I'd missed out? You had some questions. Let's go for those now, and then I'll, I'll wrap up after that. The only question I have is, please, will you recap nocebo versus placebo so that we can all shore up our understanding, do a little bit more swatting, and go out there and spread it. Yeah, so a placebo is where the doctor or authority tells you that you're going to get better, either just simply verbally, they tell you you're going to get better, or they might give you a fake drug, such as a sugar solution or whatever, or they might give you some sham surgery and pretend that they've done some surgery when in fact they haven't. So it's some kind of fake intervention. You believe there's an intervention and because of your trust in either the doctor allegedly or the drug, whatever, you get better as if you had the actual intervention. So it's an intervention without the intervention. And that's, that's the positive side of it. The nocebo is the opposite. It's where the doctor tells you something negative about you, like you're going to die or you're going to get ill, or tells you that these drugs you've been taking that make you well actually don't do anything or make you ill. So it's like a negative suggestion. So that's just basically the difference there. Simon, thank you for putting it so plainly. Wouldn't it be better if scientists were more like you? Wouldn't it be better (laughs) if doctors were more like you that could explain things in layman's terms in an honest and factual manner? Wouldn't that be great? 
And if you want some more of that greatness, ladies and gentlemen, I strongly recommend the book, The TV Delusion, The TV Delusion by Joanna Vandeleer and Simon Day. The link will be in the description. It is available on Amazon, but Amazon do not pass the proceeds on to the authors. Joe and Si are not the only authors who are having problems with Amazon. They sometimes know they've sold books because people tell them, I've just bought your book, and they've heard nothing about that from Amazon. It's not so much about the money, it's just it's the slyness, it's the mendacity of it. So please don't give your money to Jeff Bezos unless you absolutely have to. If you want a copy of The TV Delusion, you can contact Joanna Vandeleer and those details will be in the description. And failing that, reply to me and I will point you in the right direction. It's a fabulous book. It's one of my favourites. I'm on my my third read through. Simon's laughing at me. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm reading it for a third time. They were even accused, bless them, of having foreknowledge of the planned demic because the book is so good. But I, I faithfully attest that I read that book many years, three, four, maybe even five years before the pandemic. So I can assure you that they they hadn't written the book beforehand. They did not have foreknowledge of the pandemic. But when you read the book, you'll you'll see why some people might well have thought that. Thank you, Simon. Thanks very much for having me back. I do feel a bit of a fraud for cribbing all Joe's work, but I'm a hope that your listeners would have got some idea about the the link between the mind and the body and will start thinking about how these things are related and that might help them to discover their own truth. Both of us, both of us are guilty, totally guilty of cribbing off Joanna Vandalier's homework here. Thanks, Joe. We have uh, absolutely benefited from your hard work and we very much appreciate it. We'll have to get her on here one day, Simon. And I know she's shy. I know she doesn't want to, but she's so well researched and she's got a lot of really good information to offer. So maybe a New Year's resolution or or something like that for me. In the meantime, get the book, The TV Delusion, and I can absolutely help you sort that out. If nothing else from the link in the description or otherwise, you can just send me a message and I will point you in the right direction for where to get that book. Just leaves me with your child can either be educated or schooled. And these things are mutually exclusive. And while you're contemplating that, know this. The state gets its power from schooling, but the people get their power from education. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 